Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, June 7th, 2021. On the show today, news, listener questions, and in our main segment, Jim gives us the history of the Mission to Mars attraction in Tomorrowland. Let's get started by bringing in the man who observes that while people say you are what you eat, he's on his fifth Happy Meal, and he's thinking, maybe not. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? I have actually learned over time that if you want to collect the toys, like for example, like here, you can hear I'm holding a Raya toy uh, from the, <laughs> when they were promoting Raya and the Last Dragon at McDonald's. And they'll sell you the toy without the Happy Meal because. Really? Yes. And in fact, in the early days of our relationship, Nancy came within inches of divorcing me because we were collecting the Tarzan toys. And it mm-hmm. was one of these things where it's like, I didn't want to eat the food. You know, there was the, <laughs> just want, just want the, <laughs> I just want the toy. And so it was one of these things where I literally threw away a, a bag full of McDonald's food. And again, Nancy is a child of a child of the depression. Thought this was so incredibly wasteful. Oh, it's a sin. Yeah. It's a sin. So it's just, yeah, that was early trial in the relationship. I just want the toy. All right. <laughs> That's fantastic. And you have them all now? Yes, I have all of the rare toys, though I'm wondering if the Lucas stuff drops shortly. By the way, that I've uh, got the art of Lucas sitting here in the... Man, that looks like a great Pixar movie. Let's, uh, let's talk about that mm-hmm. on the next show. Okay. And now let's do a quick shout-out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers Josh O'Gold, Stupid Lisa Garbageface, that's her name, not mine, Just Jan and Emily H., and longtime subscribers The Nardier 1500, Black City 12, Alan 678739, and JP Curry. Jim, these are the folks whose work piling on the food at Epcot's Beer Garden Buffet that recently won both the Orlando Sentinel's Best German Food Award and, coincidentally, the Industrial Fabric Association's Lifetime Achievement Award for testing the tensile strength of lycra. <laughs> True story. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, button flew off and killed a guy. It was, it was very sad. Again, less strudel. Come on, a little self-control, folks. Okay? All right, folks, let's do the news. The Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. Jim, the big news coming out. In fact, it was just released a couple hours before we recorded the show dates for disney's halloween boobash mm-hmm. and details so 23 dates mm-hmm. down from 36 uh dates in 2019 okay more surprisingly i i don't know maybe it's a surprise maybe it's not ticket prices went up around 45 to 50 dollars per night what yeah so uh tickets used to be as little as 79 to 84 dollars now they start at 129 and go uh 129 for kids 139 for adults. And then uh, in, in October, it's $159 to $169. And then for Al- Halloween, it's $199 plus tax. So you're looking at $212 with, uh, with tax. Okay. Th- does this involve several Disney employees carrying bags of candy and putting them in the back of my car at the end of the night? I, I think mean- they just walk around and feed you. Like yeah. as your- oh, my God. Okay. There's a couple of things that they've announced. Uh, mm-hmm. Special cavalcades, which we we thought there would be special cavalcades. Mm-hmm. So there's uh, Mickey Mouse uh, and friends dressed up for Halloween. Mm-hmm. There's a villains Halloween cavalcade. 
a Jax Nightmare Cavalcade with Jack Skellington, Sally, and Oogie Boogie. And then also Maleficent, the dragon, mm. uh, makes its appearance from the Festival of Fantasy Parade. Okay. There are, are uh, character greetings. So Miss Carlotta from the Haunted Mansion, mm-hmm. Goofy and Chip and Dale in their Halloween costumes. The Cadaver Dance will be around. Complimentary snacks and beverages are included in the cost of the event. I don't know how many Mickey bars you can eat. Hey, yeah. For $139, Jim, but mm-hmm. I... I'd be willing to test that. <laughs> okay. We were just talking about the like we're lend, but all right. Exactly. Get it, get it. Uh, so the, uh, the thing runs normally 9 PM to, to midnight. Mm-hmm. Uh, guests can get into the park as early as 7 PM. You don't need a park reservation for that day mm-hmm. or indeed any other ticket to get in that. I mean, that seems like a lot of money. It does. And given that we just this past weekend, had the ad drop for the 50th. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's factoring into this pricing? That this once in a lifetime 50th anniversary, and especially given that the Halloween event of, I have to assume the bulk of these 23 dates are in fact in October? Well, it's interesting you mention that because the week leading up to the 50th anniversary in October, on mm-hmm. October 1st, has no Halloween events. Oh. So there might be a capacity thing there. Okay. But I think, I think this is Disney saying, look, we know that for, for the foreseeable future, mm-hmm. we're not going to be in a scenario where we had the attendance levels that we had in 2019. Mm-hmm. But the people who are coming are the true believers, and we can charge them this amount of money for that. So it could be a higher cost, fewer people, same revenue mm-hmm. scenario for Disney. That's what I think. Wasn't it Bob Chapek just last month who was talking about that he expected that the parks and you know, the Walt Disney World Resort would be back to normal operation, full capacity by this fall. He said that you could, uh, you could, you could have the parks at full capacity. He didn't say that they would be at full capacity. Ah, okay, we're finessing. Okay, got yeah. it. Okay, as, as as Laurel reminds me all the time. Remember, mm-hmm. you can charge twice as much for half as many people and make the same amount of money mm-hmm. at Disney World. Right. So I think that's what uh, that's what Disney's doing there. Okay. Uh, similarly, uh, Tusker House reopens June 20th. It's family style instead of buffet. Uh, I'll have Donald and friends as characters. My sense is this will be like the, uh, the other things like a garden grill where they'll be walking around at a distance mm-hmm. and be able to take photos from a distance, but none of that sort of like goofy walking up to you and hand feeding you your scrambled eggs type thing, mm-hmm. which I, which I will miss because uh, goofy was, had a, had a certain elegance about him when he was eating it. <laughs> okay. But yeah, it'll be, it'd be good to have a Tusker House back and that's good too, because with celebration of the essence of the spirit of Lion King or whatever the hell they're calling it these days. Um, it, yes. It's yes. like, it's, it's like, it's a little lacrosse flavor, but, uh, but for, for show naming anyway, mm-hmm. um, you know, with that back there and being super popular, mm-hmm. uh, they need, they need to feed people in that, in that part of the park. So that's good. That makes sense. That makes sense. Also speaking, you know, all of this stuff, I mean, we're getting, it's June, you mm-hmm. know, we're only a few months out now from the 50th anniversary. Isn't it about time that we start hearing about, Everything that Disney's going to do for its magic access program, the genie thing, the early theme park entry, the updates to the app. Like, shouldn't we start hearing about that soon? Are you hearing anything about that? In March, we had the announcement of, okay, we're we're changing social distancing from six feet to three feet. And then in May, inside of just a three-week-long period, we dropped temperature checks. We dropped masks outdoors in the parks. And then we dropped masks indoors now mind you cast members you still have to wear them and likewise the team members are universal but things are changing so fast my understanding is they've gone from 
you know, the notion of, okay, put the schedule on paper through, just stick with the whiteboard because this will change in five minutes. So many things are so dynamic, so fluid at the moment. And in fact, that's what's just kind of startling about the Disney after a boobash thing, that given what's going on right now, especially with that announcing 23 dates, because you and I both know that, that we're going to hear about additional dates. That's my guess, is that we'll hear about more once it, uh, once it expands. The other thing about Boobash, too, and I forgot to mention this, we talked about it a minute ago, but Walt Disney World Resort guests will mm-hmm. be able to book their tickets early. In fact, by the time this comes out, actually tomorrow, so if this comes out on the 7th, mm-hmm. so it'll be uh, the 8th tomorrow. So if you're staying at certain hotels, you'll be able to book your tickets earlier than the general public. So this is another example, along with the other stuff that's coming with Magic Access, like early theme park entry. Mm-hmm. Where Disney's saying, stay at our hotels and you get additional benefits not available to other people. Yeah, not exactly a surprise. But to give them credit, that's that's how we have a lot of revenue we have to recover from. They do. 14 or 15 months. uh, We'll we'll talk about the fact that uh, they've only got one ride opening this year. And so they need to to promote staying on site for other reasons. And Mm -hmm. that's one of them, right? Basically taking advantage of everything they can. Mm Mm-hmm. Let's do some listener questions. Uh, First one from Kim in Belgium, Mm -hmm. who says, I hope you can help me. We've booked a vacation to Walt Disney World in late August 2022. My question is, will Cosmic Rewind and or Tron be open? What do you guys think? It seems construction on both attractions is moving on. So, Jim, August of 2022. If I I were a betting man, Tron of the two, the light cycle attraction will be the one that's up and running. The wild card, of course, with Cosmic Rewind is... You've got poor James Gunn, who's got to shoot during, when they're shooting uh, volume three of Guardians of the Galaxy. He's not just shooting the movie. He's also at the same time shooting the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special, which debuts Christmas of 2022 on Disney+. Plus. He's got to shoot the ride footage for Cosmic Rewind, in addition to the film, and get it all on time, all on budget. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot. There's just, there's so much going on right now in mm. Central Florida around being able to hire workers to work on these things. Because yeah. let's face it, some of this stuff is specialized no, uh, construction. You're not just going to hire people off the streets to do it. No. And I know that the, the Disney's having some trouble with that. But yeah, I think Tron mm-hmm. will be farther along. The other thing too is, I mean, as we, we saw with Remy's Ratatouille Adventure, mm-hmm. Disney is willing to delay the open of, opening of things so mm-hmm. that they have something available in each fiscal year. So I would not be surprised at all to see Cosmic Rewind delayed oh. in its opening until after October 1st, 2022, so that Disney has something new to promote after the 50th anniversary. Excellent point. Excellent point. Yeah. All right. Here's a, uh, an observation from our friend Taylor, mm-hmm. who writes in and says, on a recent show, you had a listener ask about good outdoor dining restaurants. We were at the parks recently and wanted to exclusively eat outside, so I thought it might be helpful to share our experience. First, as you described, we never had any issues being threatened with a no-show. If if outdoor seating was unavailable, they'd just cancel, but we waited for a table uh, to be ready, and the longest way to wait was 20 minutes or so. So in addition to the places you and Jim suggested, our family also really enjoyed Olivia's at Old Key West, Hmm. where the tables are undercover with fans, and I forgot to mention this, but Taylor's right. The one downside to this is if it rains, uh, you're out of luck. Mm -hmm. You have to run inside. Mm -hmm. Um, But Olivia's is definitely available for breakfast and, and dinner. Trattoria Al Forno, though at dinner you're in the sun, so Taylor says he would suggest breakfast and then an Epcot, La Cantina de San Angel. And Taylor says the empanadas are the way to go. I am on board with that. And go. also Rosen Crown. So if you're looking for outdoor places to eat, 
Olivia's Trattoria Al Forno, La Cantina, and Rosen Crown. Thank you, Taylor, for sending that in. We also got an email, Jim, from Emily in New Jersey, who writes, I'm a longtime fan of the show and an avid Run Disney enthusiast. Your description of running down the hill with wet feet to the porta potties <laughs> before the race, I'd be cracking up before it's true. And then Emily and I do this whole thing about like all the weird stuff that we've seen <laughs> in a Disney race. It's yeah. not, fit, not fit for a family show. But anyway, mm-hmm. Emily says, uh, I felt the need to add my two cents from last week's show. You mentioned Run Disney was waiting to see what the other marathons did and that New York was virtual. Boston is virtual this year, but New York is virtual and in person. And I, I realized that after I read the website, which wasn't super clear. So mm-hmm. uh, the New York Roadrunners Association is expecting 33,000 finishers. Maybe there's a chance for us to run Disney Fanatics in 2022. If not, at least I've got my Peloton. So cool. Thank you for that, Emily. And a couple of other people wrote in and said the same thing. Mm-hmm. But man, I, I looked at the website. I, I didn't see it, but that was just me. We're in such a weird window right now. We're not post-pandemic. I mean, that's the thing to hear yeah, no, people talk yeah. talking post-pandemic. And you you think about these large events, and particularly large events that involve a certain level of insurance, and it's like, oh no, <laughs> you are virtual, and okay, maybe you can have an in-person component, but certainly not the size of the field that you've had previously. Yeah, and um, based on other stuff that we we heard, and I don't know if we can talk about it on the show, but other stuff we heard behind the scenes, I'd be surprised if they were able to do January, mm-hmm. but April might be a possibility. So we'll see. I agree. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then from James, who is writing in about a comment we made on last week's show around a listener question for being able to use mobile ordering with My Disney Experience when you have a large group and not everyone can go pick up the food. So James writes in and says, I take a screenshot of the My Disney Experience app showing that my food is ready with the code and I send it to whoever is picking up the food. Haven't had a problem yet. Have a great day. So thank you for that, James. That's yeah. that's definitely a good idea. No, that's a so smart order to run. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And then finally, this question from Aaron. He writes in and says, I'm wondering what's going on with park attraction and capacity. I was in Epcot on Friday, so this was a few days ago, mm-hmm. fully expecting it to be a zoo, but it seemed emptier than when I visited in March. It was lovely, to be sure, but what does this indicate that Disney's doing? World Showcase was more navigable than ever, and I loved every second of it. Yeah, so this is this is the strange thing, right, Jim? Mm-hmm. So to your point, we're in this weird period where park capacity is somewhere around like 42-ish percent mm-hmm. right now. It's higher than 35 it was, but it's not at 50. But ride capacity is about as close to 100% as it's been in a long time. So like we're seating every rose on most things. You know, theater seating is more compact than it was. So we've got as almost, a, we're almost back to normal on park ride capacity. Mm-hmm. But the number of people in the park is still way less than it used to be. So what we're seeing on the crowd calendars, you know, is a bunch of ones, Mm -hmm. even though they're a park, you can't get a park reservation Mm -hmm. this first week of June. It's just impossible to get a park reservation anywhere Mm -hmm. unless it's day of. But even with that, there's so much excess ride capacity to big rides. Mm -hmm. And, you know, FastPass isn't running. So that also drives down standby Mm -hmm. wait times too. Yeah, we're seeing basically still historically low wait times. And I think that's, I think that's it. I do think like these first two weeks of June, are where we're going to see the biggest trials we've seen in a while. And the reason for that is, and you, talk, you and I talked about this two shows ago, mm-hmm. but if you look at Disney's hotel occupancy, it's basically front-loaded to the first two weeks of June. Yeah, yeah. So this is the, the next two weeks here are going to be, we think, you know, peak summer season, then we'll see what happens in July. Just from an operational point of view, you're talking 42% capacity with the fact that mm-hmm. so many people are off the streets because they can actually walk up to a ride and get on it. 
it makes me think back to those early, early days in 99 of when FastPass was first introduced. And the notion yeah. of it's like, look at all the extra people on the street. And it's like, well, they're not extra people. They're people who can step out of a queue because they, they know they can get on the ride in an hour. That's the thing. So we're, you, we're trying to figure out like mm-hmm. what the parks are going to look like in terms of you know wait times and stuff like that. If Genie comes along or whatever they call it, Magic Access or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the rumor is that it's going to be, you know, virtual queues for everything for a price. But, you know, if you, if you, you know, have a day where guests have 10 virtual queue reservations, what do they do between those times? Right? Mm-hmm. Like, what do you, what do you do then? Yeah. You know, and without FastPass, mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking about, you know, the last time that uh, pre-FastPass, Disney was what at like 14, 13, 14, 15 million guests, and we're, you know, it was closer to 20 pre pandemic, uh, right before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of extra people now not in line at rides. And I think, you know, Disney's industrial engineering models are predicated on the fact that somewhere around a third of the people in the park are in line or on a ride at any given time. And what happens when they're not? Yeah. Super interesting stuff. I genuinely feel bad for you when you have to put on your unofficial guide hat, when you have these sort of seismic changes to the way the parks have previously operated. And, you know, people are looking for you to have instantaneous feedback. The all-knowing, all-seeing lead test, and it's like, well, I don't know yet. You know, so like... So we're going to be hiring a summer intern to uh, to do nothing but theme park modeling. I swear. Okay, that's probably a very smart way to go. So I mean, the good thing is, is that I think that most of the stuff that, that Disney's coming out with will be priced so high that relatively few people will do it. Yeah. yeah. And so, so then the question is, is like, what's left for the masses? We'll see. Okay. All right, folks. So we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim goes all Elon Musk on us and talks about the Mission to Mars ride in Tomorrowland. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, Jim, before you promote uh, Dogecoin and, <laughs> and try and sell all the listeners uh, solar panels, mm-hmm. why don't we talk about Mission to Mars? Where would you like to begin? If you, you talk Mission to Mars, you really have to go, again, you know, I, I apologize for going James Michener on you rather than Elon Musk. But in it's the like, beginning. In the beginning. <laughs> you know, in the beginning, you have to talk about the attraction that led to Mission to Mars, which, of course, was Rocket to the Moon. Back in the day, what was the tallest structure at Disneyland Park when the park opened in, in 55? And 
you know, the smart money, of course, would be on, on Sleeping Beauty Castle, Central Icon of the Park. But it turns out the TWA Moonliner, which was the icon that drove people deep into Tomorrowland, that actually, because of the eight-foot-tall legs it stood on, was taller than Sleeping Beauty Castle. It, 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 the very peak of it was, was 80 feet tall. Wow. You look at it today, and it's charmingly low-tech. Our nation's space program hadn't even got, really gotten launched at this point. Sputnik didn't get launched till 57, and that was kind of the inciting event for the U.S. You know, to join the space race. But Walt had consulted with Werner von Braun in the making of this attraction, and so it was genuinely cool for back in the day. I mean, you'd queue up to supposedly board the Star of Polaris, and you'd eventually make your way inside of one of the 203-seat theaters. There was supposedly a giant television screen on the ceiling of the room and then an equally large television screen at the floor of the room so you could watch where you were going and where you had come from. Now, of course, this is the early, early days of theme park. That's not a television screen. That's a 16 millimeter projector back there, but it's all synced up and so low tech. People today talk about, you know, you get in the cabin and it would vibrate, you know, and it's like, oh my God, we're blasting off. And it's like, well, no. In the corner under the stands where all the seats were, when it came time for the rocket to blast off, there was a truck tire with an independent motor. (laughs) (laughs) And it it would vibrate the theater. You get the feeling feeling when they were building Disneyland Mm -hmm. and they would find spare parts for things to make these mechanisms work. You get the feeling that nobody left their cars unlocked. (laughs) Oh, no. during, during the day because no. you come back. No, like, no. Yeah. Oh, no. I know you are a guy who lives and dies by numbers. And I have here, it's hear that, Len, that's vellum. This is information that C.V. Wood, the first vice president of Disneyland, carried with him out the door when Walt let him go in December of 55. And C.V. then went out the door and set up his own theme park you know, development company, Marco Engineering. But these are the, the actual numbers for the capacity of Disneyland back in 1955. Okay, so so before we begin, what was the capacity again for Flight to the Moon? Flight to the Moon, which, by the way, on this list is called Rocket Trip. Rocket Trip. Okay. 918 people per hour. So what is that? 206 times whatever it is to get to... Okay, mm-hmm. fair enough. Okay. But the attraction with the largest capacity and in the park at that time was Jungle Cruise. It had 2,112 guests per hour. That's a lot. I mean, that's a lot even now. Well, it is. It is. But that was the equivalent of the e-ticket for the park. And so they got really, really good at loading as many people as possible. Speaking of boat ride with high capacity, we have the Mark Twain Riverboat, which had 1,500 people. We have the 20,000 Leagues Walkthrough, which had 1,440 people per hour. And then we had the Steam Passenger Train, which had 1,270 people per hour versus the freight train where people actually stood up in cattle cars. I mean, I've hoboed my way across the country more than (laughs) once. And I got to say, you can pack more people into those cars than you'd think. It wasn't what the dizzy landers back in the day found out. They could only get a thousand. This is, this is pre industrial engineering, Jim. I'm telling you. Well, you could only get a thousand people an hour on the freight train, but yet you could get 1,774 people on the tea party? 
how exactly are you doing that? <laughs> well, they're being flung off the tea party as the ride's going, and oh. you can just keep them, keep them going there. That maybe that's it. I don't get that, but but anyway, all right. So it, like I said, so we're getting 918 people per hour on the rocket to the moon. Yeah, that's not great. So to, so for perspective, mm-hmm. Dumbo, like mm-hmm. one side of Dumbo these days is like 700. Wow. And that's better today uh, because back in the day, they were only getting 464 people per hour on that thing. Yes, they, they might have cut it down. They've probably added more um, more arms to it as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so anyway, the problem of doing a ride that's set in the future is the future doesn't last quite as long as you, you might expect it would. And right. the folks at TWA understood this, which is why six years into sponsoring Rocket to the Moon, they're like, you know, Walt, we're good. We're going to step away. But Walt immediately turns and persuades Douglas Aircraft to come on board as okay. the, the new sponsor. But one of the things that he mentions to them quietly is like, look, I know this is 1961, but ooh, we have a redo of Tomorrowland in the works. A couple of years coming up, we're going to do a brand new pre-show. We got this amazing new technology called audio animatronics, and we're going to do a, a version of Mission Control that guests can look into. And we're going to oh. take that car tire that shakes the building. We're going to change that out. We're going to put actual seats that hydraulically raise and lower as the the ship is supposedly going into orbit. So we don't have to rely on low tech. We're going high tech with this. And not only that, we're going to redo both theaters and we're going to go from three rows of seats to four rows of seats. So even more people can enjoy this attraction. And then, of course, we saw them change the name for the redo of the attraction from uh, Rocket to the Moon to Flight to the Moon. And the folks at Douglas Aircraft were okay with that, given that in April of 67, they had a name change of their own. That's when they merged with the uh, McDonnell Aircraft. And, you know, that's when they became McDonnell Douglas, you know, the the aerospace giant. So original version of Rocket to the Moon closes September of 66. Brand new version, uh, now called Flight to the Moon, opens in... August of 67, but less than two years later, people are actually standing in Tomorrowland in July of 1969 and looking at live projected images from television. They set up technology in the Tomorrowland Theater so people, while they're at Disneyland, could actually watch Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin on the Relief for Real Moon. That's right. Yeah, that's less than two years later. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and immediately after that, attendance starts to drop at the Flight of the Moon attraction. This isn't just a phenomenon that it's linked to Disneyland. In fact, I think Apollo 13, the Ron Howard movie, actually talks about the television ratings plummeted for the broadcast of, of the moon mission. By January of 1970, NASA was already cutting back the planned moon missions from 20 to 17 because they were, yeah. they, they were shifting resources over to Skylab. All right, you've got the Imagineers to try to sort of mitigate the cost of doing the redo of a rocket to the moon, the flight to the moon with that new animatronic scene is they actually built two sets of figures at the exact same time with the understanding that, well, yeah, we're going to open a clone of this attraction at Walt Disney World in 71. So as long as we're building these things. While we're here. Yeah. yeah. They did this a lot in the 60s. In fact, Mark Davis was telling me about in 68, things got really tight in fabrication at WED because that was the year they were building two entire sets of Haunted Mansion figures and props because 
Disneyland version would open in, you know, August of 69, whereas mm-hmm. the other one basically went into storage because it wouldn't be installed at Walt Disney World until October of 71. So, yeah, but they they have to keep everything around for two years. Yeah, yeah. So, same thing happened. Now, mind you, the Disney World version of Flight to the Moon wouldn't open until two and a half months after the Magic Kingdom opened, and that was largely because Tomorrowland fell behind schedule. Mm-hmm. But same thing, when they opened that one up, they had the same thing go on. It just sort of it just didn't do the numbers from day one. And the whole thinking was like, I guess the moon isn't quite the draw that we thought it was. But the Imagineers, they had a plan. And they, they you know, for them, the way out of this problem was that just to look past the Apollo program to the next exciting thing that NASA was doing, and that was Viking. Now, starting in the mid-1960s, NASA started sending probes to Mars, uh, its Mariner program. Mm-hmm. And after they'd successfully, you know, had a, put a couple of, of satellites into low orbit and did some photography, they then decided that they would send an actual lander to Mars. They would launch it in August of 1975, and it would finally land in July of 1976, which not a date chosen at random. You got to remember July of 1976 is when America is celebrating its bicentennial. So during that month, you know, Americans would be feeling particularly patriotic. And so the whole notion of, hey, we landed something on the moon, our pioneer spirit is still alive. So, you know, that was the thinking. You know, so the imaginers are, look, we're going to Mars and people will be excited about that, especially around the bicentennial. So let's try to get this show in place in the spring of 75, which, by the way, is when Disney began its two-year-long bicentennial celebration. American on Parade, when they did the two versions of the giant parade, that debuted the summer of 75. So it's all supposedly coming together. But the downside is they open Mission to Mars. The Disneyland version opens in March of 75. The Disney World version opens in June of 75 and is basically met with a collective yawn. It's funny because I, I remember going on, so my first trip to world was in 74 mm-hmm. and I was you know, super young then, but I remember going on the moon version, mm-hmm. like the moon. Yep. And then I remember going on Mars the next time too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like it not being at all like what I remembered. No, I mean, they upgraded the film elements. They upgraded the soundtrack. Considerable time and money was put into making the mission to Mars that much more an exciting show. But especially at Walt Disney World, the problem was that in January of 75, just down the street, Space Mountain had opened. Oh, yeah. And it's one of these things where it's like, come in, sit down, and we'll take you to Mars. The seat will go up. The seat will go down. Ooh, vibrations. Yeah. (laughs) Or on the other hand, we could put you on an indoor roller coaster that supposedly simulates space flight. Yeah. It it wasn't really a contest. And and in fact, it's really- My my grandparents love Mission to Mars, though. Well, no. I mean, it's just, there was definitely an audience for it. In fact, you know, it's really telling, Len, that from when the attraction opened on both coasts in 75, Mission to Mars stayed open at Disneyland through November of 1992. Wow, that late. 
You're the the one who who's talked on previous shows about how, from a bookkeeping point of view, you know, there, there's you know how long you will twenty to twenty to thirty years, yeah. right? You want to spread out your your cost of building the attraction, coupled with the fact that it was very sturdy technology. Uh, it was an indoor attraction, which meant whenever it rained, there was a line. I mean, not for nothing, it became the extraterrestrial alien encounter with minimal changes, right? <laughs> and that's also interesting. You mentioned that because that. that <laughs> They'd hung on at Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom till November, excuse me, October of 93. You know, one more year than the Disneyland version. And you're right. Mm-hmm. They did put the extraterrestrial alien encounter in there. And and, it's, and it was the same the same theater set up, right? Um, yeah. Circular, yep. uh, circular seats around a central. They mm-hmm. put a stage in instead of the thing at the bottom, but you still have the vibrating seats. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, it, it, there was a lot of physical plant they could carry over. But the very fact that your grandparents loved yeah. the flight to the moon and mission to Mars and, and the notion of what is this thing pressing down on my shoulders and why is something flicking at the back of my neck? I just It was a different ride and people who would love the previous show hated the new one. On the other hand, if we go to the West Coast, that building stood empty for six years, Len. Really? Yep. Imaginary friends would periodically reach out and it's like, are you going to the park? And it's like, yep. Go over to the old uh, Mission to Mars building and walk around the corner. And it's like, why do I want to do that? Because you'll see the paint treatments and some of the propping we're planning on doing for Tomorrowland 2055, the version mm. they never built. But it was just the whole notion of, you know, they wanted to see what some of this, these paint treatments and props would look like in the actual park. And they would just do it on a discrete corner that 90% of the public never saw. But anyway, when they finally do the new, new Tomorrowland in 98, that building effectively gets gutted, and that's where Red Rocket's Pizza Port gets built. Right. Okay. They actually built over the entrance. Uh, Now, mind you, it's one-third smaller than that 80-foot-tall version of the TWA Moonlighter. Did I mention, by the way, that it actually had a name, the, the Star Polaris? No, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I always like that. But yeah, the, okay. the you know, one-third shorter version over the marquee. Now, forgive me for the pivot here, but we have the Jungle Cruise movie opening up July 30th, and that's the latest in the series of movies uh, that's based on theme park attractions. And and of course, there will there are people who will tell you that that trend started back in 2002 with the Country Bear movie, which isn't entirely true. <laughs> no, Jim, like three people will tell you that it started with Country Bears yeah. because that's the number of people that saw that movie. There you go. And two of them were Disney executives. <laughs> By the way, Len, I'm in that movie. You're the other one. You're the other one. There All we right. go. You know, there is a moment in that film where, you know, for a tenth of a second, you can see all 800 feet of my forehead in the background. That's hysterical. You, uh, you should have an IMDb entry for that. Jim Hill, uncredited. There All we right. go. There we go. All right. But this trend of attraction-based movies actually started in 97 with Disney's Tower of Terror, which aired on ABC October 26th of that year. And okay. did so well in the ratings that the folks at the studio are like, ooh, could we maybe do that here? And so they, they go through the historic list of Disney theme park attractions and the name that jumps out at them is Mission to Mars because it's a hell of a title for a movie. Right. It's cap, yeah, it's captivating, yeah. Yeah, but at the same time, the people at the parks is like that's been closed for six years and it got really low yeah. popular. Nobody, nobody remembers this, yeah. Yeah, 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 you know. But 
they began developing a Mission to Mars theatrical release in uh, 1997. Okay. It turns out the first director that was signed to this movie was Gore Verbinski. He was the guy who directed the first three Pirates of the Caribbean movies, but he spent a full year developing a Mission to Mars movie only to then in January of 1999 walk away from the project because Disney was having second thoughts and they were concerned about how costly the movie Gore wanted to make was. But they were already two months into pre-production and there were contracts in place and they were casting for a May start date for this this film. Oh, so they were super close to starting. Yeah. So they needed another director. And so they scramble about to get, to get somebody to replace Gore. And who do they end up with? Brian De Palma. <laughs> Scarface. Yes, yes, that's it exactly. <laughs> you know, Which of course you makes know. total sense. Like, how far down in the Rolodex did they have to go to be like, uh, you know, the guy that did Scarface? Yeah, yeah. Totally on board for the Disney movie here. Yeah. What was that first meeting like? <laughs> like, yeah, you know what you did with Pacino? None of that. <laughs> like, just, you could do the opposite of that. That would be great. Just recently, Drew got to sit down with Brian De Palma and over on his uh, Light the Fuse, his Mission Impossible podcast, Brian goes into great length about his dealings with Disney and toward the end, fighting with the executives there to the effect of, it's a special effects film. I need money for special effects. All right. They, yeah. we, we sent them to Mars. You know, they, it's got to look like. <laughs> I, I think we've got some truck tires in the, in the back over here. Here we go. You know what you mean? <laughs> That worked so well back in 55. So, you know. <laughs> the palm is like, yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, well, one final thought here that, that it. Oh, wait, so hold on. So this is, this is Drew's it, podcast, it, Light the Fuse? Light the Fuse, which again. All right, it, and we can find that on, on Apple and iTunes. And there we everything. go. There we go. All right. So, all right. Final thought here, though. For me, what's fascinating about it, if you think about that moment in 1975, where You've just done the changeover from uh, Flight to the Moon to Mission to Mars. and But at the you know Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, you know, just six months earlier, we had Space Mountain open. And it's just, if you think about it, at the corner where those two meet, with the simulating space flight and mm-hmm. you know, the moving seats and the film elements on, on the floor and the ceiling, this is where Star Tours came from. Oh, right, yeah. It's like the next the next big leap. Yeah, and I, I have so missed that attraction. I really want to get back to the parks. Is that still to this day remains one of my very very favorite times at the Disney parks. That very first time I got to to, to enjoy Star Tours. On the other hand, I've had a, a, a number of pleasant meals at Red Rockets Pizza Port. So you know, just I got to get to Anaheim. Uh, starting in the middle of June, they'll uh, they'll, they'll let you in too. Okay. I, mean, I don't know about you, but like people from out of state. <laughs> there we go. There we go. I, I don't want to make any promises. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hey, wait a minute, that guy. <laughs> exactly. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish Show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including a new show on the history of World of Color at Disney's California Adventure. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplans.com. On next week's show, The History of Toy Story Midway Mania. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who'll be giving out free samples of his cow's vanilla sweetgrass-based double cream and judging the milking contest at the 37th annual Sparta Butterfest this coming weekend at Memorial Park in beautiful downtown Sparta, Wisconsin. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and Radar Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. 
We'll see you on the next show.